China, 1899. This century began with the Boxer Rebellion, China, 1899. It was a secret society of Chinese called the Righteous Harmonious Fists, named boxers by the Western press because they practiced boxing skills and that made them impervious to bullets. That was the idea. These, um, this Boxer Rebellion began a campaign of terror against Christian missionaries in the northeast province of China. The terrorist activities of the Boxer Society gradually increased through the year 1900. By May of that year, boxers were wandering the countryside and attacking Western missionaries and Chinese converts to Christianity wherever they would find them. During the summer, boxers rampaged Peking, Peking, burned down churches and the houses of Westerners and killed all the Chinese Christians that had not been able to flee the city. The Boxer Rebellion lasted nearly two years, killed 250 Christian missionaries and nearly 30,000 Christian Chinese. Soviet Union, 1966. A local court ordered the daughter, Galia, age 11, and son, Alexander, age 9, of a Soviet premier to be taken away from him because they were raised under the Christian faith. For two years, these children were kept in a boarding school that was so unsanitary the children were infested with lice. The legs of Galia swelled up twice their normal size, and they were both sick with lung disease, possibly tuberculosis. After two years of detention, the children ran away from the school back to their home. Soon after, the authorities came to the premier's home to take the children away. Galia and Alexander climbed on the couch and began to cry. A police officer who arrived to take them back aborted his plan because he could not bring himself to take away crying children. A few days later, those children attended the school as normal. The director of that school called Galia into his office where the same police officer was waiting for her and grabbed her and carried her out. On the way out, they both fell to the floor and it was recorded that Galia, Galia cried out, men, men, help me. But of course, no one helped her. Another Christian girl named Shura was also thrown into the same police car. Neither child was ever returned to their parents. After this, Alexander remained at home and never returned to school. Albania, 1973. Peter Kaskava, a priest who was told by the communists, speak against God and save yourself. He answered, I consecrate my life to Christ. I cannot speak against him, only against you, the oppressors. Soon after, he was executed. Cuba, 1973. A Christian prisoner was asked to sign a statement concerning accusations against other Christians that would have led to their arrest and their imprisonment. He said, the chain keeps me from signing this statement. The communist officer said, but you were not in change. The Christian prisoner replied, I am bound by the chain of witnesses who throughout the centuries have given their life to Christ. And I am a link in this chain, and I will not break it. Afghanistan, 1981. A Dutch couple named Berenzen, Berenzen were missionaries to Afghanistan. After several harrowing experiences, they returned home to the Netherlands for a short break. Just before they headed back, they were asked if they were afraid to return to Afghanistan. And they replied, we only know of one great danger, that is to not be in the center of God's will. Not long after returning, they were taken prisoners, tied to chairs, and tortured in ways I will not talk about on Sunday morning. At the graveside during the funeral in Holland, their five-year-old son said out loud, I forgive the men who killed my mother and father. Iran, 1996. Pastor Madi 
Kibaj, I hope nobody knows him because I just messed his name up, was accused of apostasy to the denial of the Muslim faith and blasphemy against Muhammad. He was imprisoned in a cramped hole with no room to stretch his legs. While in prison, his wife, Aziz, was threatened with stoning. She divorced him, was forced to the, by the government to marry a Muslim. Then Pastor Khabib was condemned to death. To the surprise of all, however, he was freed within a month. After months after his release, a few months after his release, a fatwa was appeared against him in the Tehran newspaper, calling for his execution. Soon after, he was found dead in a park. He was 65 years old. His four children remained faithful to Christ, but his spiritual condition of his wife is not known. The list of martyrs continues to the 21st century. Indonesia, China, Sudan, India, Nigeria, Egypt. The stories that I've just read to you were taken directly from a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's uh, the second book we're going to promote this month that you can actually grab on your way out. $10 donation if you have it. If you don't have it, take it anyways and read it. John Fox, the author, began this book in tribute to the martyrs of the Christian faith in his day in 1563, when many pastors were killed under the Catholic queen notoriously called Bloody Mary. He wanted the church to remember the martyrs, for he knew that the blood of those who were martyred is truly the seed of the church. Here's the big idea today. In our theme of to the ends of the earth, we're talking about global missions the entire month of June. Here's the theme taken from what Sarah had read to us earlier. We're not going to go through all those verses. I just love the way um, John records those two chapters. John 15, verse 20. If they persecuted Jesus, they will also persecute you. That is our big idea today. The full portion of scripture read to us earlier have, have some of the clearest words which describe how the gospel of Jesus is so utterly different than any other world religion. We must understand that many religions will require people to murder for their faith. They will require sacrifice of their own life while taking the life of another. But no religion encourages followers to turn the other cheek and pray for those who wish to do us harm, remain silent and pray as the world piles on the persecution, or even to consider it a joy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. And even when needed, face certain death. No other religion calls its followers to suffer in the way Christ has called us to suffer. Jesus told his followers that the verses that Sarah read in the chapters leading up were getting close to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So he's addressing his followers for, for some of them for the very last time. He said, remember the word that I had said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These verses reveal to us that we, servants of Jesus Christ, will in fact be persecuted like Jesus was persecuted. In the context of our theme of this month, Global Missions, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, I want to tell you, those who go to the ends of the earth will be persecuted just as their Savior has been persecuted. Specifically, those who go to the, with the intention of, pro, of proclaiming Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior of the world will be met with fierce opposition danger, and even death. Now, people will die because the world hates, Jesus says, hates him and hates his father and hates his message. People will die as martyrs. Martyr is a, a person who is killed because of their religious or other beliefs. 
their religious beliefs or other beliefs. The word martyr has a, a sound of antiquity about it. It sounds pretty old, like we don't need to use it anymore. It's a, it's a word for the days of Jesus, maybe, or maybe even the early church. Days when pagan idol worshipers raced across Europe, stuff we can only see in movies, really. Maybe it's a word for the days of the early church, where it burned its noblest saints. It's a word for a long time past, a day we no longer even remember about. Yet, according to the stories that I just read, which are only a few, many more are captured in this book, in the 20th century alone, more Christians have been killed for their faith than any other previous centuries combined. If the gospel, church, if the gospel, salvation through Jesus Christ, Christ is going to reach the ends of the earth, we must come to an understanding of this thing that we follow and worship the Son of God whom the world hates and, who, and the world hates him because it does not know him. We must understand that. The world hates Jesus, it hates his message, and he hates those who follow him. And the curse of sin does not stop at lying or cheating or stealing. The worst of our sin is not even most evident in our anger or our bitterness or the love of money or power or even pleasure. The curse of sin is most evident and was most evident in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And in the same way, the curse of sin is most evident when those who worship the creator of the universe are martyred. The world does not know the Son of God. The world does not obey God. The world does not worship Jesus as God. Therefore, the curse of sin will continue to darken their hearts and darken their minds. They will continue to sharpen their swords and seek to exterminate followers of Jesus Christ. Knowing this then, if the church is going to spread to the ends of the earth, we must anticipate and accept suffering even unto death. It's really strange for us to be in our context in the time and place in which God has placed us to live and learn about this. We should not feel guilty about that. That is not what I'm getting across. Just know that God has placed you in a time and place for a reason and for a purpose in one of the safest times ever to preach and to learn and to teach and to tell your neighbor about the gospel. It hasn't always been the case. And even today on other continents, it's not the case. It's a blessing from God that we are here today. It's not to make us guilty. But if the church and its message is going to spread to the ends of the earth, we must anticipate and accept suffering as commonplace. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. That means in the same way they hated and killed Jesus, they may want to hate and kill you. If the Son of God had to suffer and die, those who follow the Son of God may have to suffer and die. If the world killed my Savior, they most definitely will want to kill me. You know, this doesn't help us, under, like we don't understand this all the time. Just because of our context and our culture, we have a framework that we live in. We take that framework and put it over top of the Bible. So we have a hard time understanding exactly what the Bible is telling us. Even when Jesus says, if they persecute me, they will persecute you, we, we have a very light understanding of that. Those who haven't really lived anywhere else and experienced true persecution, we have a light understanding of that. There's a great lie within Christianity today, and that is that Jesus suffered for you, so you will never have to suffer ever again. That is a lie. Yet when we read our Bibles and when we read um, you know, church history and those who have gone before us, we read stories of those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel. We read about people who have suffered great bodily harm, even unto death, so others would simply hear the message of Jesus Christ. So is it true? Did Jesus suffer so I would never have to again suffer? Well, 
Yes. In one way, yes. And in another way, no. In one sense, yes, Jesus has suffered, so we will not have to suffer. Meaning, Jesus Christ was crucified, so we will be saved from the wrath of God. We will escape eternal judgment. There will not be suffering for us. That the last second we close our eyes, we will be with our Lord, and the suffering will be no more. In one sense, we will not suffer for all eternity for our sin. Jesus suffered, so we would be saved from suffering for all eternity. However, the cross of Jesus Christ does not save us from suffering for the sake of Christ today or tomorrow or even next week. Suffering and persecution does not amount to a tiny portion of Jesus' teaching. This isn't something new that we're talking about today. It's all throughout the New Testament. This has been a constant message from Jesus since he began to teach and preach. Many times over, Jesus and his apostles who come after him call the Christian community to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone's going to worship me, if anyone's going to learn from me or become like me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. A man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by Hitler's men, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Jesus saves you, he absolutely cleans you up and cleanses you. You are forgiven. You are set free. You can receive the spiritual blessings that Christ has received. Your life is absolutely changed and new. Amen? There is a joy that you've never felt before. There is security, and there's just all these things the Holy Spirit gives to you that you have never experienced before, and you're just in complete bliss half of the time. I would say that is the Christian life. But when he saves you, just know that Jesus also calls you to carry the cross that he also carried. Salvation is not our way out of suffering. It is the strength we need as we endure suffering. The problem we experience is this. I experience this, and as a church, we could experience this. We have domesticated this call to carry our cross. We've made it very light. We think carrying our cross is dealing with a fever or a cranky spouse. Don't look at them yet. Or a mundane career. We, contemporary Christians, have softened this radical message of Jesus and his call for his people to come and die. Jesus did not save us so we would not have to, so we would only prosper in this life here and now. He saved us to sacrifice our lives so others would be saved. This goes along with last, last week's message. Peter was caught by Jesus to go catch others for Jesus, and so are we. We have been caught by the gospel so we would catch others with the gospel. He has saved us so we would also sacrifice our lives so others would be saved. And Jesus communicates this multiple times throughout the New Testament. Jesus calls every believer to renounce all we have. Renounce everything we have in this life. He even says this, hate your own life. Luke chapter 14, 26 and 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is in stark contrast to the message of self-fulfillment in the Christian church. This is complete and utter self-denial. This means if anyone would come and follow Jesus, if anyone would be saved, if anyone would be his disciple and receive the promises that only he can guarantee, the love they have for their own family must pale in comparison to their love for their Savior. That's what it means. You think you love your mother? Your love for me should surpass that. You think you love your father? Your love for me should make people think you hate your father. Jesus says in Luke 14, for, uh, chapter 14, verse 33, Therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Not only are we to hate our own life, we're to renounce all that we have. Those who follow Christ must renounce. renounce. They must, the word would be abandon. They must abandon everything they have in this life. Friends, Jesus is not a seasoning you sprinkle on top of your life to spice it up a bit, to feel safe, to feel like you're really righteous and moral. That's not his intention for coming to the world. The Son of God did not enter into humanity to make you really good moral people who feel good about themselves when they go to sleep. Jesus isn't the genie you bring into your life to bless all the plans that you have created. He's so much more than that. Jesus is our treasure. He is our treasure that when we find it, we sell all that we have, and then we buy the field the treasure is found in. Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the holy one of Israel. He is the true and righteous king of the world. He alone is worthy of our praise, and he alone is worthy of our lives. Here's a quote from the book. We are promoting this month, the second one. So the first stories I read are from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. So you can get that back there. And then this one we talked about last week, let the nations be glad. The supremacy of God and missions. Here's a quote from this book. Jesus is calling every believer to renounce all that he has, to hate his own life and to take the road of obedience joyfully, no matter the loss on this earth. Jesus uh, Jesus means that whatever obedience requires it, we will accept betrayal wherever obedience requires it. Sorry, we will accept betrayal and rejection and beating and mockery and crucifixion and death. And Jesus requires, and he gives us full assurance that if we follow him to Golgotha, that's the hill where he was crucified, during all those Good Fridays, we will also rise with him on the last Easter day of the resurrection. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will have it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Why, why, why must we talk about this? Why must we be willing to lose our life for the sake of the Gospels? Well, that's our main point. It's a little lengthy, and the grammar's really bad, so just read it and be happy for me, okay? Here's the main point. We must be willing to lose our lives so the good news of Jesus Christ will reach the ends of the earth through our generation and with each passing generation until God's redemptive plan is complete church, that's what we are to do. Willing to lose our lives, abandon all that we have, renounce everything we've been given, hate our lives, even unto death, so that with each passing generation, the good news of the gospel would continue to go to the ends of the earth. There is one hope 
Listen, there is one hope for those who have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one hope. Now that's Jesus. That's, that's the answer. But let me go a little bit further. Their only hope is to hear and receive the gospel. But their only hope rests on Christians renouncing all that we have. Picking up our cross and following him. Because when we suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, the ends of the earth will be blessed. The only hope for people living in darkness and sin who have not heard the gospel is you renouncing and abandoning everything in this life. Last week I told you I've been praying all month that one, two, or 20, I know it's a big jump, but it's just a stretch goal, you know? One, two, or 20 people would say, I'm going. I'm going to where Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed. I'm going to leave the safety of our current culture, and I'm going to go. I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be a messenger. I don't know where I'm going, but God tells me I'm going. That's what I'm praying for. I hope at the end of this month, somebody's going to let me know that. Someone's going to stand up, not here, because that'd be embarrassing. But someone's going to stand up and maybe text me or message me or call me and say, I don't know what it means, but I think I need to go. And I think I need to bring my family, hopefully, right? Can't go alone. Husbands, if you want to go, just make sure your wife is on board, because it's not a, you know, don't do that. But I'm hoping somebody would go. They'd be willing to renounce all they have, abandon everything for the sake of the nations hearing the gospel. We must be willing to lose our lives so the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will reach the ends of the earth. And here's the other thing. We must do this so each passing generation understands what's expected. Global missions is about taking up the cross and following after Christ, even if that means you have to lay down your life for those you are trying to reach. Let me warn you, if one generation... If one generation gets away with promoting or encouraging Christians to live safe, to risk nothing, to gain the world, to retire early in golf or sunbathe or travel or whatever else we're told to do in retirement, if one generation promotes that, we risk not reaching those God has called us to reach. It takes one generation to live safe. It takes one generation to say collecting seashells on the shore is something you can present before God when you see him in heaven. It takes one generation of us, parents, telling our kids that we want them to live safe and comfortably and get a retirement and steer them away from the call that God has placed on their life. I don't know what that'd be like if Isaac showed up to me, we talked about this last week, or any of my kids and said, I'm going, and I may never see you again. (laughs) I don't know what I'd do. (laughs) My flesh would say, no, you can live in my basement. Don't go anywhere. You know what I'd want my heart to say? Go. Just go. What do we do with this? I'm going to end a little earlier than I do, normally do. I think I'm running out of time. What do we do with this? I want to encourage us to cultivate. That pretty much means to develop or to mature in a few ways. As a church. Maybe as an individual. And they're not really in depth. They're just some big headings, and I think that we could all take it a different direction. But I mean, I start the message off by reading five or six stories, there's hundreds in here, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, they're different. We've never met them. We can hardly pronounce their names. We could never speak their language. But you know that they were family. They were family. And the other thing is, I don't want you to feel like you have to go and die for the sake of going and dying. That's, you know, we're not masochists. That's not the idea. But you see, in going, 
you need to know. And carrying your cross, you need to know. And renouncing all you have, you need to know. It may require your life. So as a church or an individual, let us help, let's cultivate, deepen, develop a few things, mature in a few things together. Number one, three things. Tim Hiller says everybody remembers things in three, so I do three, all right? Three, cultivate a deeper love and dedication to those who go to the ends of the earth. Cultivate a deeper love and dedication for those who go to the ends of the earth. Take this book home and read it. Just read who has gone before us. May we consider, may we consider how we talk about missionaries and may we never ever call them crazy. I know it's just language, but words matter. So when you meet someone and say, I'm going to Kenya and I don't know if I'll ever see you guys again, which the camps are going in just a few short months. I don't know if I will ever see you again. I don't want him to leave. I like that guy. We have lunch all the time. We drink coffee together. It's great. But man, we never look at people that we meet and say, don't go, you're nuts. Don't go, you're crazy. Why would you ever want to do that? May we never consider people crazy for wanting to go to the places where God has called them to go. We need to cultivate a deeper love and dedication and affection for those who go. So I hope we encourage them, pray for them, and pay for them to go, all of the above. You don't feel like you're called to go? That's fine. Pay for somebody to go. Renounce all that you have been given and send someone there. I know money is a hard thing to talk about, but let me assure you, no one's going to the mission field to get rich. They just need enough to get by. I'll be very careful to not qualify my statements. I remember that I said that week one. I could qualify almost every statement. Well, if you're not called to go, you should be a missionary here. Remember, I'm just going to give you some big, bold stuff. Go to the ends of the earth, carry your cross. So I hope we as a church pray for them and pay for them to go and encourage them to go. And if you meet someone who says, I think this is the call in my life, don't tell them they're nuts. Don't tell them they ate some bad pizza the night before. Don't try to talk them out of it. Encourage them. Ask them to seek discernment and wisdom from God and their friends and their church because there's probably a call in their life that their closest friends or family may just completely water down. Let's not do that as a church. Number two, cultivate a love for those who hate us. The hardest thing to do in the Bible. The hardest thing to do as a Christian. Turn the other cheek. Pray for those who want us dead. Go to their village and tell them about Jesus. We are called to pray for those who persecute us. So here's the question. Are you praying for your worst enemy? Are you praying for those who hate Jesus? When is the last time you pleaded with God to save the militant member of ISIS? When is the last time in your prayer routine that you prayed for someone who you know is absolutely opposed to you at work and would make fun of you at any chance they get and calls you a fool because you go to church or believe in the Bible or worship the Son of God? May we cultivate a love for those who hate us. Will you pray for the church's most dangerous enemies to be saved? Would you do that? Would you even commit to that? And I'm not talking like once because I just said it. See, most of us now are going to do it at least once this week. I just guarantee it. That's how church works. 
But would it bring something that brings you to tears at night? Because there are people so deep in their sin they'd rather kill Christians than be one. Will you pray for the church's most dangerous enemies to be saved? We should be. Here's why. If there's no hope for them, then there's no hope for me. Amen? It's all by grace we have been saved. I'm not any more attractive to God than the person who hates him. I was him until God saved me. I am the worst person you have ever met. And God saved me. Although we were all his enemies, Jesus still came and died for us. And as he's hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Not the words I would choose. Number one, cultivate a deeper love and dedication for those who go to the ends of the earth. Encourage them. Help guide them. If you have some tools, some wisdom, whatever it is. You don't have to be a missionary to encourage a missionary. Encourage them, pray for them, pay for them. Number two, cultivate a love for those who hate us, Christians. Number three, cultivate a love for Jesus that surpasses our love for the things of this world. This is like the foundation to getting to the first two. If we love our life more than Jesus, we would never pray for those who hate us. We would never encourage anybody to go. Our life is not our own. We belong to God. And may we love and serve him in more than we love and serve ourselves. I would argue the majority of our lives are wrapped up in these temporary things. Blessings, absolutely, for sure. God takes care of us. He says, look at the birds. If I can take care of them, I'm going to take care of you. There's this bird that has perched on our gutter in my backyard. You know the robins that come in and make nests everywhere? We love it because our kids will stare at them for hours. Last night I was putting the kids, well, I put the kids to bed successfully. It's always a journey. And I sat on my deck, and there comes the mom feeding the babies. The heads pop up and take the food from her. It's a really cool thing to watch. And I think God said that if he can take care of that bird and give that bird food for that bird's birds, what am I so worried about? What am I so worried about? Now, I get it, right? There's tension there. We do worry. That's a normal human reaction and response. I'm not condemning you for that. I'm just saying, remember. Remember that most of the things we worry about today, God has already taken care of tomorrow. And if he's not going to take care of it, you didn't need it. That's called trust, and that's hard to do. Cultivate a love for Jesus, for your Savior, that surpasses our love, your love for the things of this world. Now, this hasn't been the most uplifting type of sermon. I get that. And some of us have been introduced to real Christian suffering and persecution for the first time. I did not make those stories up. I just recited them. So I'm going to end with a quote that I think is going to really help put things into perspective. It's from Charles Spurgeon. So we just have another Charles Spurgeon quote, right? Last week, here is one of his quotes. All Christians are either missionaries or imposters. That's a good quote. Here's a second one. Suffering is better than sinning. There is more evil in a drop of sin than in an ocean in affliction. Better to burn for Christ than turn from Christ. Because Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin, 
we are free to suffer the way Jesus has suffered. Because, I'm not sure you're supposed to start a sentence with because, I'm just doing it, all right? Because Jesus frees us from the bondage of sin, we are free to suffer the way he has suffered. Because we are free from sin, we are free to renounce all that we have in this life. Because we follow Christ, we gladly give up all we have, even unto death, to spread his message to the ends of the earth. And because we know our eternal life with Christ is promised and secured by the mighty hand of God, we can go and lay it all down. Because our eternity is secure. I'm going to close in prayer. Our God and